0: Progressivism is firmly entrenched and reflects the majority view. Christians are a tiny minority. Whilst we feel like we speak for a silent majority, we dare in the 1970s when transnationalism goes to much closer to Christian church church growth, then we, we are even less nation- likely to succeed today if from Mary finds a goal of our neighbors' Hello and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. Thank you for tuning in. This week I want to look at uh, an article by John Stevens and give something of a response to it. Now for those who don't know John Stevens, he is the National Director of the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches, FIEC. And that's a grouping of some 600 plus churches uh, around the UK and it's one of the more significant groupings of churches that would see themselves as orthodox, uh, conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. And as such, it's a fairly significant um, collection of churches, not a denomination as such, uh, although in some ways it may behave like a denomination uh, informally. Uh, the article I want to react to is called this, Contemporary Culture, To Navigate the Present, We Need to Understand Why Evangelicals Fails to Transform the Nation in the recent past. Sounds promising and uh, no doubt is well-meaning and sincere, but I am sad to say that as I read this, I was somewhat dismayed by um, the sentiments and the attitude that I think it encourages, actively encourages. And indeed, I'd go so far as to say that what John Stevens uh, presents here as the solution uh, is in fact itself the problem And what he advocates is the exact opposite of what we really need to move forward. Um, And fundamentally, I think that's because he misunderstands why evangelicals failed to transform the nation in the recent past, as I hope to show you. Um, But also, I think it's out of step with principles that we see in Scripture when it comes to winning in um, important battles. Um, So I'll link the article below for you so you can read it at your leisure. I'm not going to read the whole thing here but in essence the uh, article from John Stevens uh, is uh, predominantly a response to Dominic Sandbrook's state of emergency Britain 1970 to 74. Um, Apparently I've not read this but apparently it's uh, third in a multi-volume history of post-war Britain looking at various social changes. That seems to be what what, what prompted it for, for, for Stevens. Um, and in it the uh, the assessment is made as to why Britain over those key decades the 60s especially but one could say the 70s as well um the, the the nation became very much de-christianized in terms of legislation and in the culture we're not talking primarily here about church numbers or the number um of, of professing believers but rather looking at the culture and law in particular and how that, um moved rapidly away from Christian values in the 60s. Now um, the, the the reason that appears to have been given in Sandbrook's uh, book but more importantly for our purposes uh, the reason that Stevens agrees with uh, as the uh, as the explanation for why this cultural change happened or To put it another way, why Christians failed to stop this cultural change uh, is this. Uh, So John Stevens writes this, put simply, the church was already in decline and Christians just didn't have the numbers. Christians didn't have the numbers. He goes on to say, I think this is exactly relevant to the context we find ourselves in today in post-Christian secular Britain. Christians are a tiny minority and whilst we feel we speak for the silent majority we don't, we can make progress on issues where the liberal progressive consensus is already in line with Christian values, e.g. Tra- human trafficking, but not where it is opposed to Christian convictions, e.g. human sexuality. Uh, if they were unable to prevail in the 70s, where overall social values are much closer to the Christian norm, then we are even less likely to succeed today if our goal is simply a greater Christianisation of society transformation will only come when there is significant church growth. So there we have it. Thanks, John Stevens, for the encouragement. Um, We've been told loud and clear there we're not going to win and we can't win uh, because we just don't have the numbers. To be fair to him, he does go on to say that he's optimistic for the future because he thinks the church is growing and in particular the evangelical part of the church is growing. And he believes that as the liberals um, are stripped away, um, the church will become more evangelical. And he goes on to say this, the refining of the church to become more evangelical will also have the consequence that in coming years, church leaders will be unequivocal in supporting Christian values. Now, there's much to say um, about this. Um, But I want to begin with a word on morale. Morale, I'm told by a military friend of mine, is the critical element in the success of an army, of a campaign. Morale can be lost rapidly and uh, a loss of morale cannot be made up for uh, with numbers, with equipment or anything else. And the thing about morale is it's contagious and the thing about morale is it can be uh, self-fulfilling, a negative Um, report, for example, can be self-fulfilling. And I want to turn our attention now to Judges chapter 7 as one example of where we see the importance of morale biblically. And what I want people to understand here is that morale is not a morally neutral thing. Uh, Morale isn't like a personality type. Um, It's not even just a different way of seeing things, uh, but it is actually uh, charged with moral significance so uh, let's uh, look at Judges uh, chapter 7 and uh, what we'll see here uh, quite interestingly for our purposes is um, that Gideon preparing to fight against the Midianites and she has too many people so we're prone to think in quite humanistic terms uh, from a worldly perspective we think well it's a numbers game if we want to win, we need to have the numbers. And Stevens here is saying, well, we, we lost in the 70s, the 60s, because we didn't have the numbers. And we've got even fewer today, so we're definitely going to lose. Well, Scripture doesn't see it that way. Uh, because here in, in Judges chapter 7, we find that Gideon has too many people. Now, why does he have too many people? There are perhaps two responses we can give to that. First, um, well, maybe even three. First, uh, the Lord says to Gideon, verse 2, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. And then he goes on to say, anyone who's uh, fearful can go home. Okay, so the first reason we could say is, God isn't in the business of giving victory to the strong. Read through all the pages of scripture, you see so often it's the underdog. It's not the firstborn. It's not the the fruitful woman, naturally speaking, it's the barren woman. Uh, Israel themselves, uh, not because they're, uh, righteousness nor their numerical greatness um, but because of God's mercy uh, he loves to grant victory to the weak, the humble, um, the lowly, those few in number, small and natural strength uh, for his glory because then it's clear that he did it. So r- right from the start we can see uh, this is not a numbers game in the way that we're inclined to think that it is. Uh, in fact, uh, the Lord likes to work with small numbers for his glory's sake. But there's another reason why Gideon had too many men. Because the vast majority, or at least um, more than half, of the people were trembling with fear. Their morale was negative. And so uh, Gideon sent them home. Uh, more than twenty, uh, 22,000 sorry, men left, while 10,000 remained. You see, there are some people you can do without, frankly. You can do without people who are trembling with fear. You can do without people who think we can't win this. They're not helping the cause. They're actually hindering the cause. So we could actually say we've got too many people um, for us to win right now. As in the people we've actually got. Maybe we've got too many people. Maybe some of those people need to be sent home if they think we can't do this. Uh, but then there is a third reason why uh, Gideon had too many men, uh, even amongst those who weren't afraid, even amongst those who thought that they could, they could do this. Uh, there were some who were inept. They, they weren't switched on. They didn't have the right um, uh, skills or um, they weren't sort of battle aware. And so uh, there was that test of, of drinking from um, the water and the ones who just went face down in the water, uh, unable to see perhaps the enemy approaching, or whatever, um, they they got sent home as well. So we can see just from this short passage, um, it's not a numbers game. Um, it's about the Lord glorifying himself through the faithful few. And actually, there are some people we can do without. Um, but I want to focus um not so much specifically on the numbers for a second, uh, but rather on morale. Um, more directly, um, if you'll turn with me to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. So here we have um, the 12 spies sent out to Canaan uh, to check out the land. And uh, as you will perhaps know, uh, 10 men come back with a bad report, only two come back with a good report. Now, these men have seen the same things. They've all seen the fruit, uh, the grapes and so on, the milk and honey. Um, And they've also, both the ten and the two, have seen uh, the opposition, these huge men. Uh, We seem like grasshoppers um, in our own eyes. And we look the same to them, we read at the end of chapter 13. So we have these ten men giving a bad report. And there's something uh, significant we need to understand about the impact it has when someone gives a bad report. Essentially a report that says we can't do this which could be translated as God can't do this or God's not going to do this. Uh, We're on our own. We're going to fail. Let's not even try. Um, The first thing we need to notice about this is that a bad report is contagious. It spreads fear, negativity, despair. And so we see that at the beginning of chapter 14 of Numbers. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land? Only to let us fall by the sword. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So you can see this bad report is um, moving the people to complain, to grumble, to actually wish they were dead, and it's tempting them to sin. It's tempting them to go back to Egypt, uh, to, to step away from God's promised land, to go backwards, back into captivity. And it's been so many times before that it uh, God took the Israelites out of Egypt um, in an instant but taking Egypt out of the Israelites um, well hundreds and hundreds of years and it still didn't really happen. Uh, so the first thing we see is there's a there's a massive impact here in a bad report and it becomes contagious it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone loses heart. We read that in the account as it's retold in Deuteronomy and um, that that they, they caused their brothers to lose heart. And again, remember, morale is everything. For an army ahead of a battle, for a campaign, morale is everything. Uh, you sap morale and you're going to lose. So that's the first thing we need to notice. The other thing we need to notice is that it is not morally irrelevant. Um, loss of morale or causing others to lose morale um, is not morally irrelevant irrelevant. It's morally significant. Uh, It's described in this passage, and again in Deuteronomy, it's described as rebellion against the Lord. It's described as rebellion. So this is um, sinful. It is uh, against God's will. Uh, Elsewhere, it says that they treated the Lord with contempt uh, with this attitude, because of course, what they're really saying is God can't do this. We haven't got the numbers. We're not tall enough. And so what we need to understand is morale is a moral issue. Morale is a moral issue. So a loss of morale and encouraging others to lose morale is morally significant. We will be held to account before the Lord for how we spread a loss of morale. Now, um, I don't think we could say cowardice and loss of morale are identical. They're not exactly the same thing. There's a close relationship though um, if you flick ahead with me now to Revelation chapter 21 we'll see something about cowardice and I think cowardice is one of those so-called acceptable sins um in our generation here in the UK evangelicalism in Great Britain in the 21st century cowardice is just one of those acceptable sins people almost say with a chuckle oh I wish I had your courage I could never do what you do ha 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 as if it's a joke as if it's trivial as if it doesn't really matter as if it's a bit like um well you support this football team i support that football team oh i wish i had the emotional um strength to handle supporting norwich but i don't so there we are it's not like that it's it's not a preference issue it's not whether you feel the cold more than others or um if your if your skin is particularly sensitive. This is a moral issue and listen to what it's listed alongside in Revelation chapter 21 um, starting at verse 8. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Actually I'll just stop there. Notice that that list is headed up by the cowardly Now, when we think of the others in the list, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, we're quite used to condemning those as real sins, aren't we? No one says, oh, I wish I had your self-restraint not to commit adultery, but, you know, it's just not who I am. We wouldn't dream of justifying those things according to um, natural constitution or or personality type. Uh, And yet when it comes to uh, courage, and it's an um, opposite cowardice uh, we we seem to think it's it's really up to us to decide whether we opt into that or not but the reality is cowardice is morally significant and i think this generation of christians in the uk will be judged for its cowardice in years to come posterity will look back and see that we did not speak up for the countless babies Uh, being slaughtered in our generation. I say countless, actually the statistics are gathered really quite comprehensively. We've surpassed 10 million in this country since 67. We're now killing one quarter of all babies in the womb. More than 25% of babies are killed in the womb. And yet what can you hear from most pulpits in the land? Silence. How many influential Christian leaders or speakers, church leaders theologians can you think of who um, are speaking clearly about this issue and calling people to stand up against it i can think of about three or four in the whole country and yet we're told here that the cowardly will find their place alongside the unbelieving the vile the murderers the sexually immoral in the fiery lake of burning sulfur now i'm not saying it's the unforgivable sin As Paul said to his readers, uh, so too were some of you. Um, There's going to be place in heaven for the sexually immoral who've repented and become a new creation. For those who are practicing magic arts, who've repented uh, and born again. And same for the cowardly. But notice what a significant sin this is. Now, as I say, I don't think we can uh, say cowardice and loss of morale are identical. But what we could say is that a, a loss of morale or a belief that we can't do this Gives birth to cowardice or it gives an excuse for cowardice. In the same way, conversely, we could say that a belief we can do this or faith and hope in God and what God can do and what God will do gives birth to courage. Uh, I don't think courageous people are naturally less um, fearful or are physically stronger uh, or anything like that. I think oftentimes they just have more belief or they're holding on to their belief more strongly that God can do this and uh, our hope is in him and our hope is we will not be disappointed. So morale is important in that it gives birth to either courage or cowardice and if we're um, tempting people towards cowardice that's very significant. Now on that I want to mention how uh, the church cannot stand still. It can't just freeze and play dead when it comes to moral issues and hope that that's going to work, even internally. Uh, it's been said that the walls of the church are porous. Uh, so either the culture of the church seeps out into the culture of society, or the other way around, the culture of society seeps through the walls of church into the culture of the church. So we, we can't stand still. We can't just keep hold of our own beliefs, but not put them out into the public square and present them and defend them and promote them uh, if we fail to go out into the public square and defend what we believe and stand for truth and righteousness and justice what's going to happen is the culture from outside is going to come in uh, to put it another way um, plants can't just stay still and stay alive they have to grow if there's no growth uh they die and and so for the church if we stop fighting, which we will do if we're led to believe we can't win, if we stop fighting, uh, we won't be able to even keep what we've got. We'll lose everything. It's it's fight or die, spiritually uh, and culturally, in terms of the morality, the behaviours, the, um, the the culture of the nation. It's fight or die. And for too long, we've not been fighting and maybe that's why we've been dying. Maybe that's why Christianity has been in retreat for many decades now in this nation because we've stopped fighting and maybe we stopped fighting because of the lie we can't win. So morale is a moral issue and we've got to keep hold of our hope. Now I want to uh, dig a bit deeper into why I think uh, Stevens's assessment of what went wrong in the 60s and 70s is simply incorrect he's mistaken as to why we lost back then and uh, and that's actually good news it's good news that he's wrong on that because if, if his if his assessment were correct that it was just we didn't have the numbers well then it would certainly logically follow that we we're, we're going to continue losing right now because we've got even fewer but if the problem is something different then in fact maybe we we can so as i mentioned he, he stevens follows sandbrook in uh, looking at the numbers Although interestingly, even Sandbrook seems to pay more attention, I don't know if Sandbrook's even a Christian, but uh, Sandbrook seems to pay more attention to where the problem really is, which is not just the numbers, but the fact that the uh, Anglican hierarchy in particular didn't even stand for Christian values when they had the platform to do so. Um, So Sandbrook mentions the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, uh, Michael Ramsey, who had... um, Progressivized the church, liberalised the church. And um, he writes much of a um, lady called Mary Whitehouse, who, to, who sought to um, promote Christian values and culture, um, culminating in the Festival of Light in 1971. Um, but Whitehouse was um, dismayed to find she couldn't even get support from key Christian leaders from the Christian hierarchy, and it's around there the problem is more correctly located. The problem in the 60s was not that Christians had insufficient numbers, it's that they were insufficiently Christian. Uh, Harry Blamires wrote in um, 63, I think it was, in the early 60s, that there, there was no Christian mind, by which he meant for a long time already, Christians had lost the ability to think Christianly, especially out in public on issues such as sexuality, uh, abortion, war, uh, finance, the economy. Christians had lost their Christian mind and were only able to think in secular terms, in terms of pragmatism, in the numbers, politics, uh, all the worldly ways to try and make things essentially work. Um, he describes how Uh, even amongst Christians what had overtaken what was right morally was just the question of well does it work and he said that in Great Britain there's a particular sort of pragmatism that shies away from the awkward questions that could really stop the whole project Uh, and it's seen as much more um, acceptable socially to park sex religion and politics and just get on with the business of making it work whatever it is and whatever the end result is uh, less important. So the problem is that by the 60s, Christians had already lost the ability to think Christianly about everything or indeed anything, it seems, beyond their own um, pietistic religion. So when it comes to personal behaviours and uh, key doctrines of confessional faith, well, Christians uh, could could still think Christianly, but try and get them to think Christianly about fashion or consumerism uh, or any other issue that the the whole of society is grappling with and there was no christian mind says harry blamise there was no field of discourse into which people could enter and find others to speak with and uh, he describes it as being a very lonely experience uh, trying to develop christian thinking around issues um, in isolation because there's no one else really to talk to if you read the 1965 abortion act written by the church of england um, i did say the abortion act written by the church of england if you weren't aware in 1965 the church of england produced a report um from its board of social responsibility uh on the issue of abortion and that sounds like uh, a christian mind doesn't it that sounds like a field of uh, christian discourse tackling uh, an issue well no because as as blamire's um helpfully points out there's a distinction between christians talking and talking christianly and what this and this is a perfect example of it because what this document did and we've got a whole other episode on this you can go and listen to if you wish but what this document did was it tackled the issue of abortion in a totally secular way it took in testimonies including from a lot of pro-abortion sources um people from the abortion lobby It had precious little scripture, and when it did bring scripture in, it distorted it. Uh, This document came out promoting child sacrifice. This document failed to uh, declare clearly where life begins and at what point. And so what you can see here is that the very people who did have position at that time, who did have a voice, failed to present a Christian mind on this issue. Uh, Lest we think it was an Anglican problem, only the evangelicals were no better. The first book to be produced by a so-called evangelical was in the early 70s by one Rex Gardner. He too promoted child sacrifice. He himself was an abortionist. He performed abortions. He was a medical doctor, as well as a lay preacher and a missionary, um, identified as an evangelical. Again, precious little scripture. um, And when the scriptures do come out, they are badly distorted the evangelicals were nowhere in the 60s and it wasn't because there weren't enough of them there were there were plenty of evangelicals it's just that they weren't evangelical enough that is to say they weren't biblical enough they weren't approaching this biblically they were approaching it through the lens given to them by the culture so Stevens totally misunderstands the, the nature of the problem the problem is not that we haven't got enough evangelicals the problem is we're not evangelical enough because the problem is still here today. Regardless of numbers, the problem that we're not evangelical enough is still here today. As Stevens himself admits in a blog, which I'll also post below, evangelicals, whilst they might be broadly pro-life today in the UK, uh, and he's talking specifically of church leaders, I believe, uh, from the context, whilst they're broadly pro-life, they're less sure, as he says, when it comes to Instances such as rape. So, what that means is evangelicals aren't too sure whether babies should be put to death for their sins of their fathers. That doesn't sound like Christian thinking to me. That doesn't sound very evangelical. Or he says that um, whilst they might be broadly pro life, they'll be less sure when it comes to situations where um, the baby um, may have some severe abnormality, such as to make their life not meaningful or worthy of living. Now, that's interesting because that reminds me rather of the language you come across in the Actian T4 program by the Nazi regime, the euthanasia and mercy killings. They talked about lives not worthy of life. Is that Christian thinking? Is that evangelical thinking? And then the same with other um, issues such as the, the baby might not last very long out of the womb. Okay, so someone is unwell, someone is dying. Do we put them to death or do we look after them? There's a biblical answer to that question and then there's a worldly answer to that question, evangelicals are not sure which side of that fence they want to be on. Um, perhaps worst of all, Stevens re- re- remarks that these are nuances within the evangelical church for the pro life to- movement to, to, to conjure with, to wrestle with. Nuances. So, so thinking it's okay to kill a baby for the sins of their father apparently is a nuance rather than maybe a heresy or something that is deeply idolatrous or confused at least. Um, Saying that we should kill babies because we decide that their life is not worth living apparently is a nuance. What we're talking about here is child sacrifice. Does scripture talk about child sacrifice as an issue of nuance? Do the prophets approach it in a nuanced way? Would we say, well, we're broadly against racism, but we're just less sure when it comes to racism against Chinese people or against Japanese people. Would that be nuance or would that make a total mockery of the idea that we're against racism if we give ourselves exceptions and say it's okay to be racist in those situations? Friends, the problem is not that there aren't enough of us. We've got plenty. In a sense, you could say we've got too many. We could say Uh, we could we give that Gideonite assessment and say there are too many of us if some of us are thinking like that some people need to change their thinking or figuratively don't misunderstand me maybe they need to go home because in the battle we can do without people spreading uh, negative morale and theological confusion babies are being killed every day and largely it's because the church in the 60s failed to stand up, failed to bear witness, failed to give a clear account of when life begins and, and why human beings are valuable, and and that child sacrifice is an abomination in the eyes of God. That's why it happened, at least in part. We dare not say we haven't got enough people now to stand up and fight. There were more people back then, and they didn't stand up and fight. Standing up and fighting is a decision that we make before God, because Actually, we don't choose which hill to die on. The first hill we come to is the hill we die on. So the problem, if I haven't made this clear already, is not our quantity. It's our quality. We need to repent. We need to get our thinking straight. We need to get our own house in order. We need to decide to stand up and bear witness clearly, unmistakably, because... Babies are being killed every day, partly because this lie continues that a life is not a life until um, we've decided it is. It's just a bunch of cells in there. It's up to each person to decide for themselves what's right in their world. And these are the exact arguments that were put forward in the 60s, not by secularists, but by Christians. And so the issue is we need to repent. We need to get our thinking in line with Scripture. And we need to advocate uh, unequivocally. Uh, Stephen says that if, if, if uh, we have a church that becomes more evangelical uh, in its membership, then these people will be unequivocal, he says, in supporting Christian values. Well, they're not unequivocal at the moment. Evangelical leaders are not unequivocal in supporting Christian values at the moment. So I don't know w- what leads him to think that if we have more of us, we will become more unequivocal. It it just doesn't really work like that. How will the proliferation and multiplication of churches that are confused about abortion or don't care about abortion and church leaders who are confused about abortion or don't care about abortion, how will that ever lead to the ending of abortion? It's not a numbers game. It's about clarity. It's about courage. Now, why do I believe uh, we're going to win? Well, I know we're going to win at some point. Because uh, Christ is building his church. His kingdom will come on earth. Every nation and king will bow down. Uh, When there's a new heavens and a new earth, there'll be no more abortion. So we know that at some point uh, there will be an end to abortion. Now, I can't prove uh, to myself or anyone that it's going to be in my lifetime. But I want to give you a couple of reasons why uh, I'm hopeful uh, that it will be. Um, we have seen, I was just out on the streets on Friday, we were engaging members of the public and we have seen people, we saw this on Friday, change their minds instantly about abortion simply by seeing what abortion is. Uh, Stevens, uh, along with us, has suggested that until society professes Christian faith, they will never be against abortion. Now, in a sense, I somewhat agree There's, of course, a connection between your Christian confession and being pro-life. But if we look at the church, we can see that 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 doesn't follow um, necessarily. There are plenty of people who really are Christians, but they're not pro-life. And I know lots of people who are not Christians and they are pro-life. Because it's not as simple as as soon as you're a Christian, you automatically become pro-life. Even many Christian leaders uh, are confused on the issue. For many people, simply seeing the reality of abortion is enough to change their mind. And we had that just the other day on the streets. A girl said, well, she's ambivalent, no opinion, she's comfortable with abortion, whatever. She was led to look at it and immediately she said, that's atrocious and I'm against it. So minds can be changed prior to conversion to Christianity. That's really important for people to know. We don't have to see Uh, masses of people converted before we see an end to this and that leads on to another reason i have for being hopeful that we can end this Uh, abortion is one of those evils that is so egregious um, that even the unregenerate mind uh, can uh, see when presented with the evidence can see that it's wrong um, and and doesn't have to be a christian in order to understand that it's wrong you don't have to be a todd you don't have to be a christian to believe that killing toddlers is wrong and you don't have to be a christian to believe that uh, torturing innocent people is wrong and for many people, the reason they will say those things are wrong, but not abortion, is simply that they don't know what abortion is. So there are certain evils which are so against human nature. Killing your own child is so against human nature. Jesus uh, and the Bible speaks of love for your children as such a given, even amongst those who are evil, even amongst the unregenerate. It's, it's seen as a kind of reference point that even evil people do good things for their children. Uh, so abortion is one of those things that's so evil that when seen for what it is, it protests itself. And we can expect to see um, an end to it in our lifetime. Another reason I believe we can see an end to this is we'll look why we haven't seen an end to it. We haven't seen an end to it. uh, Largely because the the Christian church has not stuck to scripture and stood up and given a clear account of this issue in culture. Uh, If the church had been doing its job on this issue for the last 50, 60 years, and still we've gotten nowhere, perhaps I'd have less reason to hope. But it's not... Rocket science to see well, if the church has been essentially on retreat and defeatist and even internally confused on this issue, well, it's no surprise the nation is where it is today. So, there are reasons that I'm hopeful. I, I see minds changing on abortion all the time, and I'm seeing that as people are presented with the evidence, uh, their thinking is challenged. Um, but even if I'm wrong, even if I don't see it in my lifetime. We've still got to fight as though we will. We know we're going to win eventually. But even if, even if we don't get to see it here and now in our own lives or in the immediate future, we've still got to fight as if we can. We still have to do that. Uh, that's how we honour God. That's how we will eventually win. And ultimately, we don't know whether it's uh, in God's purposes to glorify himself that we have more of a Wilberforce experience or a Bonhoeffer experience Wilberforce saw success after 20 years or so of trying and failing bonhoeffer was one of the last people to be put to death under the nazi regime towards the end of world war ii so he didn't get to see uh, relief for the jews he didn't get to see an end to all the wickedness and the nazi regime in his lifetime but he fought he didn't just give up and say what can we do he didn't just say well we haven't got the numbers we haven't got the physical strength He took a principled stand and now we look back on him and wilberforce as heroes Um, but in our own context in our own generation how quick we are to dismiss those who are trying to stand for similar um, justice issues as um, naive or overly optimistic or just um, fighting in the wrong place because it's claimed we simply need to plant more churches uh, and then eventually abortion will come right. So I hope um, you understand where I'm coming from here. This morale sapping, or would be, if, you, if people are to believe it, this morale sapping um, article really could have quite some influence. And certainly it's not the first time I've seen these thoughts um, presented by Mr. Stevens. Uh, and sadly, I think many people believe them uh they they believe that we can't win and therefore they don't fight and because they don't fight they become more confused on the issue because the culture which is fighting all the time the abortion lobby never sleeps uh is pushing its ideology into the church so this is a significant error um and so i, I want to invite people who are listening in to make a, a decision as to whether you're going to be one of the 300 as it were now we don't know Um, If we get to see the uh, fulfilment of this in our own lifetimes, um, we don't know if we're going to be one of Gideon's 300 or more like perhaps the 300 Spartans who all to a man died holding back the uh, Persian forces. But generally historians would credit them with saving Europe, though they didn't manage to save themselves. So... I'm not really here to try and uh, make predictions about when we're going to win, but we've got to fight like we're going to win. We've got reasons to believe we're going to win soon. If only, if only we would stand up uh, with all clarity and courage and present the truth which is on our side uh, with the help of God who is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So uh, please understand, uh, we don't, as Mr. Stevens would have us believe, need to have more evangelicals To start fighting and winning, we just need to become more evangelical.